2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us also. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lift our morning up to you, God, and I pray that your word would shine forth. I pray, Lord, that you use me to preach well, not for my glory, not for the glory of the oasis, but for your glory, God. that all your children would be changed by your word. For some of them, it means adjusting or re-understanding the gospel in a way that creates a gospel state of mind. For some who are watching, they may not be saved. So Lord, I pray that we would preach and be faithful on behalf of the elect, Lord. On behalf of those that you are and will call to salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and for this privilege this morning. And I pray that with fear and trembling, I would be honest, bold, and loving with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The mind... Mind's an extraordinary thing. If you could turn me down just a bit. The mind, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, some of you may have heard this idea called the mind attic, which is like this is the, the storage center of who you are. And so kind of like an attic, you're, you're bringing things in there and, and you're storing it. Um, I don't know if it was coined 
by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, but I do know that Sherlock Holmes had a kind of similar idea. Uh, he would talk about this um, because he could never remember uh, Copernican theory. He could never remember that it was the earth that revolved around the sun. And he says, what the deuce is it to me? You say that we go around the sun. If we went around the moon, it would not make a pennyworth of difference to me or my work. As most of you probably know, Sherlock Holmes is a, a, a brilliant detective in these stories that can pick out the smallest details and, and solve these mysteries um, that most of us couldn't even fathom. And yet, yet he, he can't even remember that it is the earth that revolves around the sun. And he says exactly why. Because if it were to revolve around the moon, it really would make no difference to me or the work that he has to do. See, I have the same problem when it comes to remembering the difference between a sweater and a sweatshirt. For the life of me, I just cannot remember the difference, and I always end up picking the wrong one when I'm trying to say it out loud, and then Michelle has to kind of come and correct me and say, no, 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 this is a sweater, um, and I can't even tell you right now uh, what that would be. Um, one can have a hood, uh, the other one can't, and is knitted or something of the sorts, but the point is, it doesn't remain in my mind attic, Right? And the reason why this is, I, I think some of us probably understand this, we, we go through the same thing, and, and the reason why this is is because um, we tend not to remember the things that we find trivial and unimportant, unless, of course, it is provided in such a way that actually changes our entire way of thinking. It changes our, our state of mind. So you might remember that Jesus rose from the dead. And you might remember that he is from the line of David. And perhaps it's a factoid that you store for some minor theological purpose. Much like you would remember that the earth revolves around the sun. But what we see this morning is that Paul is not interested in theological trivia. Trivia and factoids will not fan our faith into flame. When I was in seminary, one of the, my favorite classes that I took was Genesis. And I had this with Dr. Wexler, and in this semester we were supposed to go through the book of Genesis, and I think we only got to chapter 11. And for those of you who know, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, so we, we did not get too far. But the class was built on being deep in theology and language, and Dr. Wexler always had this ability to bring it in such a way that something that seems so long ago could be so practical here and now. And he did it without softening the text. He did it by diving deeper and deeper into it. And one thing I remember is the, the, these aha moments that we would have in the class, particularly when we are talking about Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, that God takes man and places him in the garden. And then there's a description of uh, where the garden is and these rivers around it. And then in 2.15... 
God takes man and puts him in the garden. Except this time, a different verb is used. And then right after God places man in the garden, this time he gives man a commission, a command. Most of our translations translate it as to work it and to keep it, referring to the garden. But what a lot of people don't know is these Hebrew words actually mean worship and obey. And so man's work is not to be a gardener, per se, but in his taking care of what God has given him, man is actually called to be a priest in the tabernacle that God had created to dwell with man. And I found this to be so interesting that it has stuck with me ever since, not because it was just a fun fact to have, but because of the implications of it. It stuck with me because it was a moment of clarity where our entire identity as image bearers and our purpose in creation, something that from the very beginning God had made clear about who I am supposed to be, And so, of course, I I told everyone I could about it. And I think it might have been the way I presented it. I don't know. But the response was rather dismal. I still think most think of Genesis 2.15 in terms of Adam being put in the garden to be a gardener. Instead of put on earth to be a priest. To worship and obey the Lord through his work, through his keeping of what God had given him. Well, okay, if that is just a fact to you, then that's fine. But the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the details of the gospel that Paul finds important enough to mention here cannot be Factoids. It cannot simply be theological trivia. So Paul calls on Timothy to remember. But this is, he, he's not interested in the details of the gospel so that Timothy can simply pass a final exam at the end. Our passage this morning shows that if the gospel is a state of mind, it creates this kind of faith that is on fire. So we need to look at this passage today and what we need to create and figure out from this passage is how do we have a gospel state of mind? How do we have a gospel state of mind so that everything that we take in, everything that we think, everything that we do, every Um, idea we have, every word that we speak is filtered through the truth of the gospel, not filtered through the theological trivia of the gospel, not filtered through the, the, the details that don't really seem very important, but those things becoming such a state of mind that it not just has room in our mind, addict, that it it is the It is the uh, overarching 
what those blanket covers that you put over things in the attic so they don't get, you know, mothballs or whatever. That, that needs to be the gospel state of mind. It covers everything in our mind attic and everything filters through that. So Paul tells Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and the offspring of David. The word remember here is not simply cognitive recognition, but the idea of keeping in your mind. So not just getting up each morning and reciting the gospel, but to get up each morning and think on the gospel. To start each day by meditating on the gospel. Letting the gospel create your state of mind. Well, I think we understand that experiences tend to create states of mind, right? I mean, because we've, we've talked even on Wednesday about this idea of worldview. Um, so that's not in, in totally foreign to us at this point. But um, when we look at what makes our state of mind, we tend to look at experiences in our lives. So uh, for some of you, your experience from childhood may have been either you were told or shown by example that the pinnacle of heroic manhood is by those who can jump the highest, run the fastest, and throw the farthest. And so because of that, you, um, the, the pinnacle of human achievement becomes professional sports. And so what, what do boys who eventually become men tend to never stop dreaming about? Becoming famous athletes. And when they can't, the next best is to try and create their sons into those heroes that they could never become. Even to the expense of family, friends, education, even church and the Lord. Therefore, instilling into the next generation their own children a state of mind that the highest priority isn't God or his people, but something else. Perhaps you were raised differently. Perhaps you were raised, either told or through example, that the pinnacle of womanhood was to not be tied down by children or marriage, but to be strong and courageous in the face of the patriarchy. And so you grew up with that being your state of mind, where you don't need no man. And you look at maybe those who are stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home wives as holding back your gender. Well, in the same way, this passes on to the next generation as well. Our experience becomes our state of mind, and that's what we express to those around us. And for those who are the most susceptible to follow our example, it really, in a lot of ways, becomes their state of mind as well. So experience can create a state of mind, right? Lifestyle, but also moments. Moments can create a state of mind. I think most of us probably remember a morning back in mid-September, either hearing on the radio or watching on TV as another plane crashed into the second tower. 
wondering what was going on. I remember being just a kid. I remember getting a call from my dad waking us up in the morning because we were out in California, so it was very early for us. I remember that moment being etched into my mind as I watched on the TV what was happening before me. I remember hearing from my dad that Flight 93, the heroic Flight 93 that, that didn't reach its destination was the exact same plane I was on just a couple days before. Was it the same crew? Same pilots? It created a state of mind that is now a moment of actual generational shift in our country because we understand the difference between a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11 world. And so believe it or not, these create states of mind, whether through childhood or through moments of experience, and they um, become these things that now... Uh, what we take in and learn and experience filters through them. See, but the gospel was never intended to be just a moment in history. It was never meant to be remembered just as a date or a turning point, like D-Day or 9-11 or Pearl Harbor And the gospel is not meant to just be a childhood experience. And neither were the details of the gospel. Paul makes it clear that this gospel, his gospel, is a reality. And the details of that gospel, when we understand them, create a state of mind that the rest of our lives filters and thoughts filter through. So my question this morning is, what is your state of mind? We all have one. Maybe you've never even really taken too much time to think about what that might be. Maybe you've never really looked through what has created your state of mind. And you're not alone, because many people don't. Most people just simply presume their reality. But those who presume to know the truth without examining it really spend a lot of their lives believing a lie. So what are the two points that Paul specifies in the gospel that he preaches? Well, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descendant of David, according to my gospel. So the first one is, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus has conquered death. This, this is essential to our gospel. I think we know this, right? Our Lord is alive. Other gods, other idols, they're dead. Other religious leaders are dead. They die. There's... Um, a cult down in Florida, a buddy of mine was telling me about because he works like two minutes from this area where there was a cult and their leader was supposed to die and then come back to life, uh, but he, he didn't. So when he died, his followers just put him in a bathtub 
and, and waited until, I guess, it got so gross that the authorities came and said, you got to bury him. You got to do something with him. And this was like 100 years ago, and there are still followers today waiting for him to resurrect and come back. But that's not our God. That's not our Lord. Not only did he raise from the dead, but he appeared to many. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul's saying an essential detail to the gospel is that Christ died and rose again. Why is this important? Well, he had to die in order to conquer um, and have victory over sin in our lives, and he had to raise from the dead in order to have victory over death. Death being the last punishment, or the, um, sorry, death being the punishment for sin, the last punishment that we would experience But Christ has conquered that. Next, he says, Christ is from the line of David. Some say a descendant of David. He's from the lineage of David. Well, what does this mean? This means that he is the eternal king. He is, Jesus, the the long-awaited Davidic king that was promised in 2 Samuel 7. The throne of Christ has been established forever through his reign. So in Christ, we have new life, And in Christ, a new king. And I think many of us still think through old filters of our lives, our old life, our old kings. Almost like people who spend long periods of time in prison and and really don't know how to cope with the world when they get out. They're not sure who they are. They're not sure what they have to offer, and it's a tragedy. But it's the life and values that we have become conditioned to. So it wouldn't surprise me if many people, when they come to Christ, are still struggling to figure out who they are are still struggling to figure out their identity, still trying to understand why did God save me? What does he have for me to do? What is the purpose of why I'm here still? And so because of that, there's still this mindset of slavery. But Christ came for freedom. And it's a freedom I want all of us to experience and understand. A freedom that happens that not, not just at the moment of salvation, but a freedom that we actually carry with us for the rest of eternity. And so in order to do this, the gospel needs to become our state of mind. And an example of that was Paul. The gospel was Paul's state of mind, which is why he says he's enabled to endure suffering and hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal. This is why we see that everything in the lives of the apostles that that, that we see uh, in in, in the book of Acts and, and in the letters that are written in the New Testament, the lives of the apostles were just 
focused on Christ and filtered through the gospel. And Paul says the reason why this happens is because the word of God cannot and will not be stopped. So the truth is that Paul had such an experience with the gospel that everything he understood shifted into submission to Christ and his eternal king and embracing the new life that Paul had in Jesus Christ. So this is what happens at salvation for us, is when we understand the gospel, there is a monumental shift in our way of thinking and our way of understanding, and it's because we've been made new, but this new life that we've been given in Christ allows us to live differently, understand the world from a different and true perspective for the first time, and realize that we have a God who is alive and a God who is king that we answer to. So Paul does all this, and he says, the reason I endure all these things for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And this is what we've been talking about through 2 Timothy. This is part of having a gospel state of mind. This is part of having faith on fire, is that you would have a, a desire to see the elect come to Christ. You have a desire to see the lost to be saved so that they can enter into eternal glory as well. So let's create this state of mind, okay? Let's create this state of mind. And we're going to do it through Paul's trustworthy saying. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So if we have died with him, we will live with him. This is pointing right back to what uh, Paul had just said, the details of his gospel. Christ has risen from the dead. There was a rich man who had land and wealth and plenty. And in fact, he started to have so much that he needed to tear down the storehouses and the barns that he had because they were overflowing, and he had to build new ones instead in order to fill those. And once he had filled those, he felt content with everything that he had accumulated over his life, and he spent the rest of his time eating and drinking and being merry. Then that night he died, and the Lord said to him, you fool. Do you not realize that at this very hour your soul is required of you? And all you have made, all you have accumulated, whose will those be? The Lord is not in need of those things. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, we'll find it, Matthew 16, 25. So let me ask, what do we think Paul means based on the first part of this saying? This trustworthy saying, he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. 
What do we think that means? There are many people who think they live with Christ, but they have not died with him yet. There are many people who think that they live with Christ, that they walk with Christ, that they will live with Christ for eternity, but they have not died yet. They have not died with him. They have not died to self. Part of creating a gospel state of mind is recognizing that we need to die. That our lives do not belong to us, but to Him and Him alone. Then Paul says, if we endure, we will reign with Him. So this is that second detail of the gospel. The first one was, our God is alive, so we will live with Him. The second one is, He is the King. He is from the Davidic line. He is the king. And so Paul says, and therefore we will reign with him. So Christ is already king. So there's this promise that that we will reign with him one day. But then the question probably becomes, what in the world does it mean to reign with Christ? I I had a professor one time as well, and he would say it this way. Um, He pictures the kingdom like this, where Christ is there, and we are reigning with him, and Christ makes a decision, and we just go... It's a good decision. That's probably part of it. But I want us to look back again. All the way back in Genesis. Where man is commissioned. Where man is given dominion. Where man is given responsibility. He is created to have dominion, kingship over this world under the headship of the first man, Adam. He is the federal head. And from his line, we're supposed to be men and women who had dominion over this world. But we know that sin entered into this world through that man. And it disrupted that dominion. There's a documentary I was watching a couple weeks ago with uh, Ellie and Cadge and Michelle. And what we saw it was a panda documentary. And so Ellie and Cadge were just fascinated by these, these panda bears. And there was a storm in China. And, and because of this storm, these pandas were, were stuck in these trees. And, and if you watch this documentary, you see the, these pandas are just like helpless balls of fur. I mean, they're, they're adorable. Um, and, and what was amazing, though, is we saw these, these scientists rushing into this forest to save these pandas, these, these pandas that are already near extinction, and, and, and nursing them back to health, and helping them breed and, and repopulate so that they don't um, die out. There's a caring element of reigning, of dominion, called call to, to care and take care of what is in this world. In 1996, John Krakauer descended from the summit of Mount Everest, snow blind and exhausted. 
Many of the men and women who he had spent the last couple months training with were still on the mountain, either frozen or barely clinging to life. A few weeks earlier, he had asked them why they wanted to climb Mount Everest, to which they answered, because it's there. There's a conquer element as well to dominion. And by conquer, I mean like exploring, understanding. So when we think of dominion in the old creation, man was supposed to care for God's world. Man was supposed to explore God's world and understand God all the more through these things. See, we do them now in this fallen world because we were made to reign. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. Some of us might lean toward the caring element of dominion. Some of us might lean toward the conquering or exploring element of dominion. But it's inherent in you either way. But unfortunately... When we care or conquer without God, we end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so what ends up happening is you have these scientists that disregard their families even to care for these pandas or think that these pandas are are image bearers as well, practically. And you have men and women that worship a mountain. They want to conquer a mountain because they want the kingly glory that they don't deserve. So reigning with Christ, when we reign with Christ, we are recreated to have dominion over the new creation under his headship. And so yes, there is mystery to this. We don't know what our, our, our any given role might be for eternity. But we know there will be work. And I believe this work will be with an untainted caring and exploring characterized by the perfect worship and obedience of our triune Lord. That's what it'll look like to reign with Christ. So as you go through life, not only do you need to understand that you need to die in order to live, but you have to also be looking to the end. You have to endure now and understand that in the end, you will reign with Christ. You will sit down at the heavenly feast with Christ, and then you will spend eternity worshiping him and obeying him by reigning with him and having dominion over the new creation. Working in perfect harmony with others, without sin, without idolatry. Then Paul says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. I want you to take a moment and think about the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas denied Jesus by his character. He betrayed Jesus for silver, and then he took his own life out of guilt. 
Peter denied Jesus more in his words, right? That's kind of the, the focus, at least, as he denied him three times before men. But his response is in bitter contrition. He, he weeps and he runs to Christ in repentance afterward. There are those who deny Christ, either in word or in character, most likely in both. And to an extent, all of us, we know what it's like to deny Christ, even even in our our post-conversion lives, because we understand that it denies Christ when we choose our sin over him. So we choose our sin over him like Judas, but we don't want to end like Judas. And to an extent, we all wrestle with doubts and with fear over what could happen in our lives by submitting to Jesus, like Peter. But will you be a Judas or a Peter in how you respond? Will you wallow in your state of denial or will you run to the Lord? And this takes us into our last point of the saying, which is, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So there's a promise here. If you are truly joined to Christ and his, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, He is the husband who never swerves from the covenant he made with his bride. See, these images of the gospel that we see, like like even this image of marriage, they're not meant to just be trivia. They are meant to create a state of mind. As you view the world, you view it from a perspective of you are in covenant with the Lord. And it is a marriage kind of covenant. We, the church, are the bride of Christ, and he is our faithful, faithful husband. And the covenant he made with us is with his own blood. So even when we struggle with faithlessness, even when we are the adulterous bride, even when we whore ourselves out to the sins of pride and lust and pleasure and and laziness, he remains faithful. He remains this faithful covenant husband. And he will faithfully call us back to repentance. He will wash us in his word. He understands that we are the weaker vessel that needs him to lead. And it is all out of his great love and adoration for you, his bride. He is not faithful because he's obligated. He is faithful because the promise is made from love. He has become one with us, right? The two have become one, husband and wife. That's why Paul says he cannot deny himself. If I deny my bride, I'm denying myself. Some of you here may be acting unfaithful right now. 
Some of you here, may, maybe you, you understand, I, I'm faithless right now. I'm wrestling with faithlessness. Come back. Be like Peter. Don't be like Judas. Don't, don't wallow in it. Don't sit in it. If you find that your life has been unfaithful lately, run back to Jesus. Confess your sins to the Lord. Repent of your unfaithfulness to Christ and turn to a life of faithfully loving and obedient worship to him. This is who you are meant to be in Christ. And so a warning with that is do not presume that just because you say you are a Christian or go uh, to church or read your Bible or were baptized or said a prayer that you can continue a life of denying him with your character. That's what Judas did. Today, the Lord is calling you to respond like Peter. Run to him and do it before his patience wears out. So a gospel state of mind the gospel is not something that we store in our mind attic. It's, it's not additional information. It's not made up of factoids and trivia. These elements of the gospel, these, these, these details, this trustworthy saying is meant to create in you a, a, a state of mind and a filter through which everything that comes in and everything that comes out has to go through this gospel filter that you are new in Jesus Christ. You have been given new life and you have a new king. So is what you are doing part of your new life? Is what you are doing the good works that God has planned out beforehand for you to walk in? Is what you are thinking and what you are taking in in obedience to your king? Is it pleasing to your Lord? And by understanding the trustworthiness of Paul's statement, dying with Christ, enduring so that we may reign with him, being faithful, and him being faithful to us when we are struggling with faithlessness. These are the sort of things that we need to ponder and sit on and, 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 and think through so that this gospel state of mind can grow and mature and develop, that we may be sanctified. So for the true Christian... Everything in our lives must filter through the truth of the gospel. Put on this gospel state of mind and you will live a life that is characterized by your new life and pleasing to your new king. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us listening here that we would grow in this gospel state of mind, that, that we would mature in our understanding of the gospel in such a way that our, our lives would look new and, and, and newer each day, Lord, as we are sanctified by your word, and I pray, Lord, that our lives would also be characterized by submission and obedience to you, our loving and perfect King. We thank you, Lord, that you have 
given us your word and that you've given us this passage that we can understand why Paul would use these elements of life and kingship when, when speaking about the gospel to Timothy here. In his, in his last words, in his last letter, in his farewell address to Timothy, Lord, let it be Paul's farewell address to us as well that we would recognize if we are going to continue in the ministry, if we are going to continue being ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we have to always be thinking on the gospel. Let it create in us a heart and mind dedicated to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.